Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, from the One King West Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or podcast, welcome to the meeting. Today we present Canada's top experts in the field of hate and extremism, research to explain the unparalleled growth of hate groups and what Canadians can do about it. The Empire Club of Canada, in its past 115 years, has addressed nearly every national and international issue of the day. In its rich history, however, it has never addressed the issue of white nationalism until today. And unfortunately, you may not be surprised to learn that in having a record of every speech delivered, we have found speeches in our archives in the early days that have exhibited a type of thinking that frankly is unimaginable today, thinking that was prevalent at the beginning of the last century. Early British Canadians with views on how the Anglo-Saxons all need to stick together, or how misplaced the suffragettes were, and other similar viewpoints. Thankfully, times have moved on and the Empire Club itself has strived to be a modern, diverse, and inclusive organization, and the speeches delivered at our podium have reflected changing attitudes of society. However, that doesn't mean there are no longer persistent or salient societal issues that need to be addressed. And part of the Empire Club's rich history is its willingness to have important and at times difficult conversations at our podium. And that's why we are here today to talk about white nationalism because the experts say it is on the rise and statistics show that hate crime is on the rise as well. President Donald Trump agrees with none of what I just said. <laughs> stating that the problem of white nationalism is caused by quote, a small group of people that have very, very serious problems, unquote. But if you're here today, I doubt you believe that. If you're watching our podcast, I doubt you believe that. Bernie, do you believe that? Bernie doesn't believe that. So there's a, diver, a division between public perception in terms of whether this is a serious issue in Canada. There are people who just believe this is an American problem. And our panel will address that today. We know that the internet and social media have provided new tools, connectivity, and anonymity to those interested in spreading hate speech. But I would think people want to know is what is causing this increase? Where does it lurk and how do you stop it? In my life, I have a son and a new baby girl, and this is Alice. All six pounds, two ounces of her. She was born just a few weeks ago. And when she is old enough, the conversation I want to be having with her is, Alice, in this world, everyone is treated equally. All you gotta do is work hard, and that's your advantage in life. But, you know, it's your ability to work harder. But the reality is the world isn't quite that place. Alice Emerson will not experience the life as a target of certain types of hate. And I didn't experience certain things in my life. And I realized that there are many parents who have had and, have had and will have to have more difficult conversations than I will. So in terms of today's introduction, I thought it was more appropriate to turn it over to someone who had relevant experiences, and that is Dr. Mohamed Faki. Many of you know his story, having purchased a nearly bankrupt restaurant and transformed it into one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in North America. Many of you would also be aware of his dedication to helping others. I've known Dr. Fakih for a little while, and when he wasn't a big shot, he was very interested in saying, you know, how's your family doing? How are things with you? What's going on in your life? 
And now that he is a big shot, he's saying, how are you doing? How's your family? He's, he's a very lovely man. And he's always taken time for me. And uh, he is a community leader and a citizen, supporting multiple causes and organizations, including the Canadian Cancer Society, Islamic Relief Worldwide, Sick Kids Hospital, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and a whole bunch of others, the UN Refugee Agency in Canada. Both Paramount and Mohammed have donated generously to these charities and other nonprofit organizations. He's also started a nonprofit organization himself called the Faqih Foundation that ensures, ensures undeserved communities and at-risk populations are motivated and empowered for entrepreneurship, leadership, diversity, and inclusion. In the past three years, he uh, went to, uh, in the past three years after the Canadian government decided to welcome 25,000 Syrian refugees, Dr. Faki made headlines in the Canadian news when he traveled to Lebanon to visit Islamic relief camps for Syrian refugees to gain a deeper understanding of current relief efforts. He's won a tremendous amount of awards and if I listed them all, I'd be here all day. Uh, he, the 2014 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, uh, the Globe and Mail uh, titled Dr. Faki with one of Toronto's 16 to watch in 2016. He uh, is named the 50 most influential people in 2017 by Toronto Life, and he got an honorary doctorate from Ryerson in 2018. Dr. Faki represents the very example of what Canada should want new Canadians to be, the very example of that. And yet he has been exposed to racism, Islamophobia, unfair impediments in traveling across borders, and more. I will leave it to him to experience, uh, and to describe his experience, and to have the honor of introducing today's panel. Please welcome philanthropist, activist, community leader, founder of the Faki Foundation, and CEO of Paramount Fine Foods, Dr. Mohamed Faki. Thank you, Kent. I was just whispering to Kent, and I said, I'm very proud of you. I did. Good afternoon. I feel really honored to be here today. And just like you, I look forward to learning from the impressive people that will be speaking after me on the panel. I'm not an expert. My experience with hate isn't academic. It's personal. I'll tell you about, about the most prominent example, the one you may have read about it in the news, and some of you may already have heard me talking about it, but I will be talking about it very often because we need to have more and more conversation like this. Kevin Johnson is a guy who runs a hate speech website, and he made me his favorite target, calling me terrorist, calling me jihadist, making videos outside my restaurants and saying that you are only allowed inside my restaurant if you have raped your wife or someone else's wife so many times. He said that inside my restaurant, everyone inside is up to something nefarious. Now, my English is good, but I had to Google that one. I have an accent, but I like it. I want to keep that one, too. At first, I'm like, buddy, people are here, and they come to me to just buy shawarma, relax. I tried to reason with him, but he would pester me, attack me online, 
follow me and my children around shopping centers, shouted at me, made my children shake, and my son Adam, four years old, wake up three, four times at night asking who's that man who hated his dad. Finally, I decided enough. Enough of this. This is Canada, and you shouldn't be able to get away with this in this country. So I sued him for defamation in 2017. Last month, we had the verdict. The judge agreed with me. She awarded $2.5 million. And she wrote that the things that Johnson said about me, I quote, a lot of them example of hate speech at its worst, targeting people solely because of their religion. I believe in fighting back, as you know. I think more of us should do that. The judge she wrote in her judgment left unchallenged. Hate speech poisons the integrity of our democracy. There are a lot of reasons why immigrants and minorities don't stand up for themselves. A lot of people call me and tell me, and did call me, and say, let it go. You have a lot to lose, and he doesn't have anything to lose. Why do you do it? Why do you get in yourself involved? None of them realized that I would have had lost myself if I let it go. If I didn't fight back, I would have lost the respect of my family and my children. And most importantly, I wouldn't have realized again and found myself the person I wanted to be. Some, immigrant, some immigrants and newcomers don't have the money for a legal fight. Some don't think they'll get a fair shake in the court system. Some newcomers don't want to be seen as the troublemakers in their new country. All immigrants and minority are appreciative to the opportunity given to them by Canada. When I came here with $1,200, a smile from a Canadian made a difference to me and to my life. A lot of them are afraid to lose that opportunity they were given. But when hateful words go unchallenged, it's like an invitation to others, an invitation to come out of the shadows, make them feel safe to announce, and even celebrate their intolerance. There are laws in place to protect all Canadians, those born here and those who've been welcomed here. We should not be shy about putting those laws to work for the greater good. We should proclaim all of us loudly, hate speech, has no place in Canada. If you speak hateful words, if you engage in hateful actions against anyone, against a Muslim, against a black, against a Jewish, just simply against any Canadian, you will be held accountable, and as per the judge, you will pay two and a half million dollars. I don't know how much of the judgment I will ever collect. Johnson is not a rich guy, but I will go after him. But no matter how much it is, I will not feed my family with that money. I'm going to use that money to financially support others who seek to protect themselves and our Canadian values against people who engage in hate speech. I would like to use that money to organize more events like this and start a call to action 
to all of you, business leaders, in law firms, quite frankly, all of us together. Talk more about this. Start workshops in all companies and in schools where we actually ask the parents to show up. As well, we should demand more from our political leaders. It's important to keep up the fight, and I will tell you why. The same day that I got the judgment, I couldn't wait to go back home and wait for my kids at 4 o'clock to arrive with the school bus. I wanted to read the decision to them. I wanted to know that I came through with my promise to them. I promised them that that person that scared them in the mall will pay a price. They were happy for me. My wife was happy, but that same night, that person repeated the video of my children in the mall to upset me and to anger my family. He actually made another video and said worse thing about me and my family and about my community and just the fact that I'm Muslim. I acted like it's all good. I was smiling because I didn't want my family to lose that celebration moment that they waited for for two years. But before I went to bed, I was sitting alone and I realized I only won one battle, but the fight and the war will go on. The fight will go on for all of us Canadians if we do not stand up against hate. Sometime when I get upset, I go to my computer, I go to YouTube, and I go start listening and reading the speeches of Martin Luther King. To me, King's words are a reminder that it's not enough to remain silent in the condemnation of hate. To win against hate, we're going to need a loud voice and a firm spine, someone to divide us, but we need to keep this country warm and welcoming. The hate we hear today, it's a challenge to our way of living, but it's also a chance for our country, an opportunity to stand up for what's right and what's good. In the face of intolerance, we can come together. In the face of hate, we can love. And other countries building wall and clothing themselves to the world, we can open our doors wider. We do not often speak of the Canadian dream. Even when I was a kid in Lebanon, everybody spoke about the American dream. We should often speak about the Canadian dream. What should be our Canadian dream? It should be a dream for us all, not only for ourselves. It should recognize that Canada works best when its people work together in community and respect, when we stand together in good times and bad, when we speak together in opposition to hate and those who try to divide us, and we, when we join together, all of us together. Like today, there is a table where we partner to put half of it Jewish and the other half are Muslim young people to come to listen to this. When we join in building a country where intolerance is pushed to the farthest fringes and shouted down each and every time it raises its voice, there will always be people who hate from their bone. But together, all of us together, we can make them smaller in number, smaller in influence, smaller and smaller until they all but disappear. That's, this is my Canadian dream, and I hope it is yours. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Kent and his team, and even one king and the team, that they serve the food, because I'm someone that understands that. But the Empire Club to take the, on, the, the leadership on hosting something like this to talk about anti-hate. Let, let's all together send a message right here from this place, one king, from the entire Club of Canada, frankly, all of Canada, let's try to send a message. I'm gonna ask you all to join me to stand up. Let's send a message right here from one king that all of us Canadians stand up against hate.
Thank you. Before I introduce the panel, I wanted to say something very, very important to all of you. Let's go, Raptors. I promise I found it in my car because of my kids. Now I can't wait to introduce the panel. Half of the panel was with me on another panel three days ago. We're going to end up repeating ourselves today. Our first panelist career spanned from more than a quarter century, focused on human rights, pluralism, and inter-ethnic faith and race relations. Former CEO of Canadian Jewish Congress and the Mosaic Institute, he is recognized and called upon by the courts, media, law enforcement as an expert in human and civil rights. He's one of the few in the field to be accepted by Canadian courts as an expert in hate crime, white supremacy, and anti-racism. He's, he's a chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and sits as a board member of a Human Rights Watch. He, have, he has been recognized by Canada for his human rights work, having been awarded the Canada 125 Medal, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal, and the Sovereign's Medal, as well as the Special Commendation Award for the Venerable Order of St. John. He writes for newspapers and magazines and is a sought-after speaker, appearing regularly on television, radio, and podcast, and proud to call him my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, welcome and help me welcoming my friend, the chairman of the Anti-Hate Network, Bernie Farber, to the stage. Our next guest is a lawyer by profession. Mustafa completed his Juris Doctor at the University of Alberta and Osgoode Hall, and later earned his Master of Law at UC Berkeley in California. He previously served as a senior political staffer to a provincial cabinet minister, in which role he worked on various legislative and policy initiatives. Mustafa was also a visiting scholar at Osgoode Hall Law School, researching countering violent extremism policy in Canada. His book entitled Law, Politics, and Countering Violent Extremism is forthcoming. He's published writer and commentator in various news media and publication on issues related to Canadian Muslims, human rights and civil liberties, and public policy issues including Islamophobia and national security. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mustafa Farouk, the Executive Director of the National Council of Canadian Muslims to the stage. Thank you. Barbara Perry is a professor, I just met her two days ago, and we were on the panel together, is the director of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism. She has written extensively on social justice generally and hate crime specifically. She has published several books spanning both areas, including diversity and inclusion, crime and justice in Canada, and in the name of hate, understanding hate crime. She has also published in the area of Native American victimization and social control. Dr. Perry continues to work in the area of hate crime and has begun a contribution to the limited scholarship on hate crime in Canada. She's regularly called upon by local, national, and international media 
as an expert on hate crime and the right-wing extremism. Her community work has recognized, was recognized in 2018 with the Ontario Leading Woman Building Communities Award and was recognized in 2019 by the City of Oshawa for her volunteerism. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor in the Faculty of Social Science at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, Dr. Barbara Perry. Last but not least, finally, today's moderator is one of Toronto's most recognizable faces in news, and I'm very, very proud of her. Farah Nasser is an award-winning journalist bringing extensive experience to her role as an anchor on global news at 5.30 and 6. Nasser's status as a trusted journalist with a strong political background, having covered elections at every government level, has earned her the opportunity to moderate key political debates, including the main 2018 Ontario provincial election debate and the only broadcast 2018 Toronto mayoral debate, providing viewers across the GTA much-needed clarity for nearly two decades. She was on the ground reporting during major, major events, such as the Toronto van attack, the G20 summit in 2010, and Toronto 18 terror trials. Nasser's began her career with Rogers TV before accepting a position with New Stock 1010, where she worked her way up to a reporting role. When not reporting, and I know that for a fact, on the day's headlines of global news, Nasser's always spending her time volunteering in the community. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the news anchor for global news, Farah Nasser. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed, for that uh, kind introduction for all of us. Thank you all for being here. and. A special thank you to the Empire Club, because I know you mentioned this is the first time the Empire Club is doing a discussion like this, but I really feel like in a public forum like this, we were talking about this, this is possibly the first time this topic is being broached and um, with, with leaders from our country. So I think that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the last time we're talking about this, but it certainly is the first time, and thank you for making that happen. I think it's so important. Now, I think we should begin today uh, by talking about the elephant in the room, um, which is uh, that there are people, possibly in this room, but I know certainly in other rooms, that believe this isn't an issue here, that this is an American problem. Um, certainly, it seems for me, covering the news, this is no longer relegated to the margins of society. But uh, Barbara Perry, you are, uh, you're, you're an expert in this field, you know very well. Set a baseline for us and explain this phenomenon, if we could start that way. Sure. Um, yeah, I think what I'd like to do is uh, sort of set the context in terms of what are the manifestations? How do we know uh, that there is a rise in white nationalism or white supremacy, um, far right uh, activism, if you will? And I think there are a number of indicators of that. Uh, one of the most recent uh, I think signs of that are the data that came out from StatsCan uh, over the last year, which looks at police reported hate crimes, uh, which we found there was a 47% increase in the number of police reported hate crimes from 2016 to 2017. That's unprecedented to have that kind of increase in any category of crime. And I would argue if it was any other category of crime, we'd have been calling it a crisis. Uh, we'd have been demanding national inquiries, you know, what's happening here, but it, we haven't really been very active. 
uh, around this. Um, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's really telling. So we have the, the uh, hate crime data. The other thing uh, is the presence, uh, increasing presence in visibility and vocal nature of the organized hate movement. Uh, so uh, uh, white nationalist groups, white supremacist groups, uh, those sorts of things. When we published our first study of uh, the far right in Canada, we identified just about 100 active groups uh, across the country. Uh, and we're now sort of on the second stage of that research. And already, just four years later, we're estimating well over 200, probably approaching 300 uh, active groups uh, across the country. Um, so I think that those two figures uh, together uh, are enough. And, and maybe the last thing, sort of linking them, is if we think about the number of homicides simply in mass murders in the last four or five years. What do you think? A couple? Three? Four? Nineteen. Nineteen homicides attributable to some strand of right-wing extremism. Justine Bork killed three RCMP officers in Moncton, inspired by his own uh, sort of online radicalization, if you will, reading right-wing websites. We had Alexandre Bizanet, who killed six Muslim men at prayer, inspired by Islamophobia, inspired by Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen. And then more recently, of course, Alec Manassian, who took 10 lives in Toronto in his van attack, inspired by misogyny associated with the incel movement, which is part of the far right as well. If these aren't reasons to take seriously the threat, I don't know what more evidence we could possibly share. Can I just add to that, uh, in the last municipal election as well, I mean, we saw um, in Toronto here a white nationalist and uh, neo-Nazi enabler, uh, as you've said, Bernie, and uh, in Mississauga, we had uh, the, same, the same man who um, was in that lawsuit with Muhammad Faki, uh, a vile uh, Islamophobe and, and anti-immigrant agitator, and together they got 50,000 votes. 50,000 votes in the GTA, 50,000 people um, have voted for hate mongers. So, you know, it's not even a, a, an issue in terms of geography, the most diverse place where diversity is our strength. This is what's happening. Bernie, I'm going to turn it over to you because you're the one who pointed that out to me. You've been monitoring, you've been confronting, and you've been dealing with hate groups um, and white supremacist groups for, for much of your career. You were at the Canadian Jewish Congress, the Paloma Foundation, the Mosaic Institute. Now you're the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. How did your, uh, your journey bring you here? How, what, what was your journey, I guess, in getting to this, uh, to this point? And, and what lessons have you learned along the way? The journey really started with my father, who was a Holocaust survivor uh, from a small village in Poland, uh, 750 Jews. Uh, he was the only Jew to have survived the war. His first wife, two children, seven brothers and sisters, uh, the entire village of Jews was, was murdered in the gas chambers of Treblinka. Um, and he survived, and he came here to start a new life. And it was his words, really, that, that I think inspired me from, from that day forward, to understand that hatred is alive, and silence feeds hatred. And to always speak out, as, as Muhammad quite eloquently said. And so my, my journey took me through to the Canadian Jewish Congress, where I figured look, one of the things that we really have to do is defend our own community, and by defending our own community, we also defend others. Um, and we're going back to the 80s and 90s when, with the first rise of neo-Nazism through what was known then as a group called the Heritage Front. Some of you may remember them. Uh, they used to be called the Canadian Nazi Party, but they got a little bit smarter, and they decided, well, we can't call ourselves Nazis anymore, 
and they picked up the term heritage front. Well, heritage, what's wrong with heritage? Uh, and of course, we, uh, we cottoned on to it in the, in, in the end, but the fact of the matter is that it never went away. It was put down, it bubbled on the surface for a while, and we've seen, these, uh, we've seen this happen time and again from post-World War II. It, it almost goes like this, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, and today we are in a situation that uh, I don't think I've ever seen before, to be quite honest. I am, uh, I am very worried, I am very concerned. Barbara went over the number of murders, and, and that to me shows that there is a clear and present danger. But let me add one, one thing just to give you a, another perspective when people say to me, well, how bad is it really? Well, the fact of the matter is that the Canadian Military Intelligence Group came out with a study just a few weeks ago. This was from our own Canadian Armed Forces, in which they identified that between 2013 and 2018, there were 53 active members of neo-Nazi organizations in the Canadian military. And at this time, as we're speaking right here, there remains 33 active members of some of the most violent neo-Nazi organizations in the world, groups like Adam Waffen, classified as a domestic terrorist organization in the United States, 111 percenters, the Proud Boys. They're serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. They're getting arms training. They're learning how to make bombs. We've have, we have implored the Canadian Armed Forces to do something. Get rid of them. Take them out of service. And all we've been faced with is silence. So today, I am calling upon the defense minister to take action. Get rid of these 30 before something terrible happens. And I hope you're with me on that because this is huge and this is important. That uh, the government certainly uh, has, to, has to answer for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, Mustafa, I want to turn it over to you uh, because we talked about stats. Can Barbara Perry, we have never seen in modern history um, hate crimes against the Muslim community like we have seen uh, in, in modern history. And these are reported hate crimes because most hate crimes, remember, are not even reported. Um, Muslim men, women, children uh, targeted with violence, even death. How, how did we get to this point and how do we confront this ugly reality, Mustafa? Uh, well, thank you for your question. Uh, I think it's important to note that we still, there's still a large amount, and maybe this is the academic within me, there's still a large amount of research that needs to be done to fully account for the rise uh, of public, the public-facing nature of many of these groups. Uh, I think I generally agree with Bernie that these, this sentiment never went away, but really went underground. Uh, to understand how these groups continue to uh, articulate themselves more publicly, uh, to be more active, to organize, to militarize, I think there's a lot more research that's required, and that's something that Dr. Perry has been sort of paving the way forward on. Uh, so I think in terms of understanding that, I think we can think about factors like the rise of uh, populist movements in the South and how that's influenced uh, Canadian politics. Uh, we can think about uh, a real network of folks who are invested in Islamophobia uh, and other forms of racism and white supremacy uh, across North America and Europe. Uh, so there are a number of potential factors. Um, but just to sort of double onto the points raised by Bernie and Barbara already, uh, I think it's so critical to understand that the problem of white supremacy is a problem that's affecting people every single day uh, in their lived realities. And let me put that more precisely. Um, you know, I was on a plane the other day to Quebec, and we got a, uh, to, sorry, to Edmonton, uh, and we got a call from the Quebec City Mosque. 
uh, which as you all know was the site where the largest attack against uh, any religious minority in Canada took place. Uh, and at, during this phone call we learned that um, there was an individual who came to the mosque and assaulted one of the mosque goers uh, while assaulting him, uh, you know, called out uh, you know, a number of anti-immigrant and Islamophobic sentiments uh, and asked for everyone to show them his, their passports. Uh, and when we asked the premier uh, of Quebec to stand up, to, to stand against uh, a, a discourse of intolerance, a discourse of division, you know, his response was, what, you know, what discourse of divide, what discourse of division, and uh, specifically noted uh, that they weren't going to add, you know, necessarily, you know, more police protection for the mosque, you know, things are fine, uh, and, you know, what are we really going to do about racism? It was just sort of a shrugging of the shoulders uh, kind of response. And when you have people at the very top uh, sort of shrugging their shoulders in response to this kind of racist, white supremacist violence, that's when things get very concerning uh, for us all across Canada. And it has to be more than lip service, right? Like, let's talk about specifically the tools and also um, do police have the tools that they need? And I'll open up to all, all three of you. Do police have the tools they need to do their job in enforcement and also the justice system? I mean, are we doing enough? Is, is, are, we, are we seeing enough in terms of um, uh, what, what we're seeing cases going through the justice system? We heard Mohammed Fakis, but what's happening in, in that realm with authorities, Barbara? So. Very, we have very limited um, legislative tools uh, with which to, to counter this sort of uh, hate speech and, and hate crime, uh, in fact. We don't have a standalone piece of legislation that says this is a hate crime. Uh, we have sentencing legislation, so if something, uh, an assault is found to be motivated by uh, bias or prejudice, there might be uh, an opportunity to enhance sentencing, uh, uh, to enhance the sentence after a finding of guilt. Uh, it's invoked very rarely. The only other legislation we have is really propaganda legislation, which is kind of around hate speech and especially um, you know, sorts of things like ward news. But uh, between t uh, 2010 and 2017, again, I'm going to ask you to guess, how many cases do you think? Hundreds, dozens, thousands? 37. With, keep in mind, you know, the number, the dramatic increase we've been seeing. The legislation is not enforced. In part, that's because of hesitancy on the part of the Crown, because this is a case, uh, a series of offenses that need to go to the Attorney General for permission to lay charges. It's the only offense uh, in the criminal code. <laughs> Police aren't well uh, trained uh, in investigative techniques, especially in smaller, uh, smaller services in smaller cities. Uh, some of the larger cities like Toronto, York Region, uh, for example, you know, they do have trained personnel, they do have hate crime units, but that is not the norm. Um, so police aren't in a strong position. Crowns aren't well trained uh, in, in building the cases either. So uh, again, we have very few tools. After Section 13 of the um, Human Rights Code was uh, eliminated, um, that left us with no even civil, civil remedies for hate speech, uh, the kind of hate speech that uh, Muhammad was uh, talking about. So we're in, we're in pretty dire straits in terms of our ability to confront it legally. And let me just follow up a little bit and give you the example. Barbara mentioned Your Ward News. How many people remember the case of Your, Your Ward News? This was the rag that was distributed here in Toronto and Oshawa and other places that was probably a, a prescription, if you will, mm -hmm. for what hate crime is. You open that newspaper and you thought, this is the most hateful thing I've ever seen. 
It was reported by me and a couple of other people in 2010 to Toronto Police. The case just finished about three months ago. Now, the man was found guilty, Mr. Sears was found guilty, and he will be sentenced in the next couple of weeks. But it took close to seven years to move from investigation to settlement. I don't think a homicide <laughs> takes that long. So uh, keep, keep this in mind. There's also a lot of angst over the whole issue of free speech versus hate speech. Um, the uh, Section 319 uh, makes it a, a criminally indictable offense to knowingly and willfully promote hatred against a group identified by race, creed, color, nationality, sexual orientation. And as Barbara said, in order to lay that charge, there's an extra level of protection in that you need the Attorney General's uh, permission to, to do so. And so very often, these charges are not laid because, quite frankly, police just can't be bothered by that. They don't get it. Now, Barbara kindly said that there were a few um, Metropolitan Police Forces that still have hate units. The truth of the matter is there used to be many uh, police forces that ha had hate units right across Canada. They've all been eliminated. What they do now is they assign two or three individuals within the intelligence unit that when a hate crime comes along, they get to investigate it. So it's not the same as having a specialized group of people who have been specifically trained to deal with this. And now, at a time when the rise in hate crimes is, is so monumental, but more than that, when it's turned, during my time at Canadian Jewish Congress, we were dealing with swastikas painted on synagogue walls and slogans, terribly written slogans, you know, damn Jews, whatever you, whatever you want. They were hateful, disgusting words. But today it's moved from hateful, disgusting words to violence and murder. Violence and murder. And 50,000 people in the greater Toronto area thought it was quite all right to put an X beside the name of a neo-Nazi enabler to be mayor of their city. Think about that for a moment, 50,000. Doesn't amount to a hill of beans when you're talking about two and a half million people in Toronto, but to me, it amounts to a hill of beans. Why? Because it only takes really one person. It just takes one. So of those 50,000 people, how many of them are really active? I don't know, even if you say a thousand of them are really active, or a hundred are really active. One person in the United States in 1995, Timothy McVeigh, planted a bomb at the Alfred P. Murrah building in, uh, in uh, Oklahoma City, where 168 people, 19 children, were murdered. One person. Think about that. So many points to pick up on that, but I want to, uh, Barbara, I'm curious from you, because um, you've studied this, how do words become action? Mm. How does that happen? Because, I mean, and we should probably, I wanted to have a bigger conversation, maybe this is the right time to talk about it, is social media. Mm -hmm. That is such mm -hmm. a big part of this, right? Um, we know that Facebook and, and um, also YouTube are limiting access to, to white supremacists, but are they serious about this? And is this actually doable? How do you police that? Yeah, social media is, uh, I think, one of the greatest enablers of the, uh, the movement right now. Uh, and, you know, Facebook and YouTube and all of these uh, various forums that they have access to become important points for them to connect and, and by connecting then build and, and empower themselves within their groups, but it also enables them uh, so, you know, a hate monger in Toronto can now connect with, uh, you know, the, the stroke of a keyboard um, with their uh, sort of like-minded others in uh, Birmingham, UK and Birmingham, US. 
uh, with people in Austria and Australia. Uh, and so it also creates this broader national network, so a collective national identity, global identity around white nationalism, white supremacy, that empowers them even more. Um, so the very access to that, uh, it, it sort of increases their sense of strength and empowerment. Uh, it increases their capacity to recruit through, um, through just their words, through their music, through their games, through uh, you know, whatever sorts of, of uh, electronic um, media that might be uh, associated with them. Uh, it also then, I think, affects the, the communities that are targeted um, because they're also aware of those narratives. And so I think in some respects, it, well, it empowers the groups, it disempowers targeted communities uh, as well. Uh, so a very dangerous locus uh, for the concentration. Uh, and it is also one of the things that contributes to the violence. I mean, so many of the uh, mass murders that we've seen associated with the far right, Christchurch, for example, Pittsburgh, uh, even in uh, in. Quebec City, uh, and certainly Manassian in Toronto, uh, all have made reference to what they learned online, the kinds of engagements that they've had online, the narratives uh, that they've adopted from some of these far-right websites. So there is a straight line uh, to be drawn in many cases. Mustafa, and then Bernie, what do you want to see social media sites do? So I think uh, we were recently at the Justice Committee. Uh, making a number of recommendations around uh, countering online hate. Uh, and I think uh, Dr. Perry pointed to how, for example, in Justice Hewitt's decision on Alexander Bissonnette, uh, in paragraphs 9 through 12 of the decision, uh, uh, the justice talks about how Alexander Bissonnette was you know, consulting hashtag Muslim ban on Twitter, he was on YouTube, he was on Facebook. So it's not you know, a particular social media company. This is a wide whole of society approach to combating this online hate issue. In fact, if you go onto various you know, neo-Nazi websites, uh, you'll find my name, and you probably will find Bernie Farber's name uh, as, as potential targets. They, they, li they like us. They like us. Yeah. They like us. Uh, we're, we're part of their fan club. Uh, so um, it, it's important to, uh, to think about uh, how we're going to combat that from a whole-of-society perspective. We're specifically calling on the federal government to begin in a, a parliamentary study for how to regulate social media companies. While we recognize that um, things like the Digital Charter uh, and the Christchurch Declaration are important for steps, uh, they remain aspirational uh, and they haven't yet uh, resulted in real concrete regulation. We're looking for a parliamentary study that will specifically bring together the best minds, folks who are thinking about civil liberties, folks who are thinking about the protection of, uh, of people, people who understand the internet, people who understand how complicated this web is, uh, to weigh in and provide concrete recommendations for the government uh, to, uh, to build really robust uh, but balanced regulation around this. And I, and I also just, before going forward, I also want to note that it's really easy for us to be like, oh, you know, this stuff happens online and it's sort of limited to this sort of online scope. In Alberta, which is obviously my, my home province, uh, there is a group called the Three Percenters, which Dr. Perry has written on extensively. Uh, and this group, literally, as we're speaking, uh, you know, they get together and do meetings and do live ammo trainings for practicing going into mosques with, you know, semi-automatic rifles. They prepare bombs. Uh, they, uh, you know, get together and talk about their hatred of Muslims. Their chapter president said that the only, Muslim, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. Uh, and recently, affiliates of their, you know, of the Three Percenter organization called the Canadian Infidels scoped out one of my hometown mosques, the Arashid Mosque, uh, 
uh, with one of their uh, folks, who I won't say his name, entering the mosque and doing a video recording to scope out uh, the, the mosque, uh, you know, in a very palpable, terrifying sense. So not only do we have to think about immediate changes to the way we deal with online regulation, we have to think about how is it acceptable that a group is actively militarizing, actively espousing a, a, an ideology that commands for the murder of, of a segment of our population, and we're not doing anything about it. I can tell you that if those you know, same people looked like me and were training in the forests of Alberta with you know, automatic rifles, I think we'd be doing something about it. Uh, and it's incumbent that we take an immediate step, an immediate stance to stop these folks. Let, let me just take this one step further. Um, Mustafa spoke about the three percenters. I mentioned uh, the problem in our Canadian military. Those same three percenters are part of the 33 individuals who are presently getting trained by the Canadian military. They don't have to hide in the forests of Alberta. Mm -hmm. They're getting the training within the Canadian military. Now, can you imagine for a moment if these 33 people, instead of being white supremacists, that the report was that there were 33 members of ISIS uh, getting trained in the Canadian military? Uh, you guys would be out of your seats storming uh, the federal government immediately to do something. And yet, if it's white supremacists who have killed us in our houses of worship, that's okay. Leaders have to lead. It's as simple as that. And this past January, when uh, there was a uh, United We Roll uh, convoy came to Parliament Hill, you, all, you will all remember that, amongst that convoy at least one-third of them, and we had people there on Parliament Hill identifying them, mm. we belong to the Yellow Vest Movement, which has turned into one of the most racist, anti-immigrant, Islamophobic movements in this country. Faith Goldie, whom we talked about, uh, a neo-Nazi enabler, spoke at that event shortly after the leader of, the, of Her Majesty's loyal opposition spoke there. He had the opportunity to call out racism and bigotry, and he chose not to. The Canadian Anti-Hate Network takes no sides in politics. I've called out the defense minister on the military. I call out the leader of the opposition in not speaking out against racism because that's what gives them oxygen. Mm -hmm. Yes, it may have started in the United States with, you know, with, with Trump saying, you know, there are some good Nazis. There are no good Nazis. They're evil people, period. But that's the kind of thing that gives them oxygen. As soon as they hear something like that, it's like they can just step out of the garbage can, dust themselves off, and continue with their evil work. So we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of work to do, for sure. Certainly. I, ha I have a bunch of other questions, but I feel like, uh, just because of time, I want to turn it over to the audience if there are any questions, or I could keep going. If there yep, there's a question back there. Yep, we have a mic. Uh, <coughs> In America, there's a well-known phrase, make America great again. <laughs> I think we can emulate that, leaving out the word make and again. Canada is a great country, and organizations like the Empire Club have got the fortitude and the wisdom to gathering a group of well-respected, honest, decent people to explain to us all that we're not quite perfect but we've got a direction to go. All of you speakers, I think, suffered, especially Bernie, that can sympathize and understand discrimination and bigotry. My question is, 
in the long term. We cannot change the past. We're in the present. In the long term, will the younger generation perhaps have less biased views inherited from previous generations, Second World War, Nazis, or whatever, that this young country can really flourish? Can we identify, as you've done in your speech, speeches, the, the, uh, the cancer? And can the younger generation adopt a well-balanced view of the growth of Canada? Well, that's an excellent question. I, I, um, I have great hope in the young people of Canada. Um, in the last federal election, when there was a turn towards Islamophobia, um, can Canadians, and main, a lot of young Canadians, mm -hmm. turned against that. And I, I think that's something to recognize. However, let's be clear, the Nazis of the 1980s and 1990s are not the Nazis of 2019. They are, they are not skinheads on the streets getting into fights. They're in universities. They're in colleges. They're in businesses. They're in law firms. They're in government. They're all over the place. And if you take a look at them today, they're wearing suits and ties, nice trimmed beards, um, and they're finding ways into young people's consciousness. And we have to find a way to battle that. And the only way to battle that, well, you have your parents on the one hand, but where are kids spending most of their time? Mm -hmm. In school. In school. And that's where the education really has to begin. As, as, as young as in kindergarten, right through high school and right through university. And if we don't get that information out to them as, as part of the educational process, I fear for the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that, to add to that, I think the educational process and what, what needs to be included in that is not just, you know, the diversity education and the anti-oppressive training that they're, they're, they claim that they're getting now. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's not quite clear that that's really happening uh, in the schools. But in addition to that, um, they also need digital critical digital yeah. literacy skills. This is one of the issues, and not just youth. I would argue even adults need that um, because there's so much, not just misinformation, but disinformation in the media now, social media in particular. Uh, and we don't all necessarily have that, maybe the will or the capacity to unpack that disinformation, to do our own fact checking. And so I think it's important that, you know, with this next generation, well, we've got the opportunity, we've got that captive audience in the schools, that's the time to teach them how to be critical about what they read on uh, social media, how to deconstruct the mythologies uh, that are so common, those, those narratives of Islamophobia and racism and anti-Indigenous sentiment and misogyny and all of those other things. Um, so I think we have a great opportunity that we can't afford to lose if we, in fact, we do want to move forward with uh, you know, what, what I see as sort of the, the, the realization of core Canadian values of equity and inclusion and respect for, for diversity. That's such a good point about media literacy. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. Um, any other, I think back there we have a question and then up here. Hi, my name is Chai Kalewar. Uh, I have uh, varied experiences in this regard. Starting with in 1980s, uh, uh, I was at a function at University of Toronto, and uh, I was, the function was attacked, but I was also in, involved in that. I was, uh, we were attacked by a group called Western Guard. Mm. Uh, I, I think Bernie failed to mention them, but they were quite active in those days. 
and <coughs> that happened anyway I, that's a long story i will not uh, get into it too far and it's a old story also but recently perhaps a uh, new face of western guard has appeared in the washington called trump <laughs> and in my opinion their uh, his uh, uh, you know make america great again uh, has uh, received a, a my response in this cat if you can read it no we can't read it what it says it? make our planet green again <laughs> it, we it have a better be challenge again. now uh, to challenge the existential crisis that we face uh, in terms of climate change and nuclear age and uh, yes these are problems but uh, they are not existential problems not that i am trying to belittle they are existential on an individual basis maybe right but as a community at large perhaps not uh, so anyway i i'm just trying to change the focus that uh, the, the climate crisis is a lot more pressing uh, than the issues are had right yeah the, the, certainly there's i think everybody in this room uh, we we all know that this planet is changing and certainly an issue for another day to to discuss but yeah we are all in this together in terms of the planet so thank you for that um, there was yet yeah, one last question here Uh, yeah, we have a microphone coming to you. Just one second. Right behind you. I had a big mouth. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I just want to ask um, any member of the panel, how does economy factor into the mm. rise or fall of hate crimes and hate issues? I mean, Barbara, you spoke about education. Well, this is Ontario. You see what's happening with education. Mm -hmm. So to add mm -hmm. hate education onto that, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, then there's <laughs> the police, um, and they, you know, I suspect there are also cutbacks there or the resources. So how does the economy, when the economy is good, mm. does, is hate on the down? Such a good question. It's a really good question. I th and I think one of the things, so Canada's come, I'm glad to say Canada came very late to this game uh, relative to our European counterparts and even American counterparts where the rise of the right um, has preceded us probably by a decade, at least a decade in Europe because of uh, the financial crises, uh, subsequent crises in Europe. I think we were buffered because we didn't suffer quite the same troughs and valleys. Uh, as other parts of the West. Uh, and so I think uh, we've, we've sort of been privileged uh, by that. But uh, we'll look at the Ella Vesters movement, for example. I mean, when they began, and it's really a shame what's happened to them, because when they began, it was really grounded in um, authentic concerns about economic insecurity, and especially in the energy sector and the oil industry in Alberta. Uh, and so, you know, economic uh, uncertainty can play a, a role. Um, and that's been since, as, as you suggested, uh, has been sort of hijacked uh, and co-opted by uh, the far right because it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great legitimate set of concerns to then graft on uh, the racism uh, as a means of scapegoating. Who's responsible for all of those problems? Uh, you know, it's multiculturalism policies, it's globalization, it's all of those bugaboos associated with the, uh, the far right narratives. Um, so uh, economic cycles can have uh, an impact. Mustafa. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Perry that they certainly, and looking at the sociological conditions that lead to uh, white supremacy is, is important and it's critical, but we also have to recognize that affluent folks can be super racist too. Mm -hmm. uh, and our folks who are indigenous, our folks who identify as black, uh, our folks who have experienced that 
for years not accounting for economic dips and cycles can tell you that very clearly. Uh, so I think we have, to, we have to be cognizant to the fact that just looking at sociological indicators uh, doesn't alleviate us from the personal moral responsibility mm -hmm. of standing up against racism, of standing up against white supremacy whenever we see it. Thank you. And let me just uh, end with this, because I know we're running out yeah. of time. Uh, I said leaders have to lead. All of you here are members of different communities, the business community, education community. You, every one of you have a responsibility from this day forward because you now have this information. You cannot go home and forget it. You just can't. It's, uh, it's now embedded in your minds. And I would ask each and every one of you, speak to your MPs, speak to your MPPs, speak to your local councillors, tell them you no longer will stand for this. You want hate uh, uh, education in the schools. You don't want them to pull back from that, as you said, because they will. But you have their ears. So please, this is a time to not be silent. My father used to say, if you want to get something done, you've got to open your mouth. I implore you all, open your mouth. And there's a federal election coming. This there is. Of time. All right. Thank you. To deliver the appreciation remarks today, we have our board member of the Empire Club of Canada, MJ Perry. Um, I am a post-war baby of this city, and I was raised in what I thought was a diverse and compassionate and caring community, but I was also taught to be a nice, polite little girl who never challenged anything. I want to thank all of you, uh, Dr. Fakie, for sharing your story, Ms. Nasser, Mr. Faber, um, Mr. Froon, and Dr. Perry, for showing us that it's okay to be a little rude sometimes when it's courageous and to point out those things that we need to change. Thank you for being patient with us to tell us how, and thank you for giving us ideas to go forward and do. And I'd like to quote Mr. Fakie when he said, hate speech destroys the integrity of our democracy. Thank you all. Thank you, MJ. I found the panel and everything today very moving, and I think this is one of our best events of the year because I think it was really, really from the heart, and I thank you all for coming. Uh, I also want to recognize a few people who have uh, supported this event. Obviously, Councillor Thompson, it means a lot that you're here today as, a, as representing our city, and uh, we have a couple of other people. We have a, a former uh, Finance Minister, Charles Souza, here today. I want to thank you that. And we have a former chief of staff to a premier, Andrew Bevan, here today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Is there anyone in the room uh, representing social media, uh, social, a large social media company? Is there anyone here in the room? I, I, we, we, yeah, we did, we did invite them to come today. I just wanted, I wanted to recognize them because I thought they'd want to be part of this conversation. Um, so, uh, but... Uh, but so I just wanted to, to recognize anyone from social media who would be here, but I, I, I haven't been introduced to anyone. So ladies and gentlemen, we are almost at the end of our season. We have a, a few more events coming up. We have a Women Who Build event tonight uh, about women in the construction sector. Uh, next week we have a very important event on education. This topic has come up a lot today. But the Conference Board of Canada and the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation are teaming up. The Conference Board is releasing a report on, uh, on uh, the 
inve how investing in education contributes to the economy next week. And that will be a big deal uh, and it will make a lot of news. So it's next Wednesday lunch. And then we have the federal health minister coming the following week uh, to talk about palliative care. So a couple more events uh, uh, here for the rest of the season. By the end of the season, we would have had 39 events since September. So we're very proud of this season at the Empire Club. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Meeting adjourned.